Well, welcome to Columbia University. Uh, I welcome you on behalf of the university and the Columbia Center for New Media Teaching and Learning. Um, we're happy to have you all here, and uh, we're looking forward to an interesting day. Um, in, the, in the late 60s, uh, it was customary among young people, and, and frankly, I'm not sure whether the tradition has, has managed to survive, um, for them to uh, take off for the entire summer. And very often with very little money and with a backpack and uh, trek across Europe, go across even places like Siberia and uh, come back to college or university life at the, at the end of the summer. And um, you need that context in order to understand a New Yorker joke uh, that depicted two people uh, moving across a kind of deserted plain uh, and the way the cartoon is constructed, they seem to be approaching one another. And when they get close to one another, uh, one says to the other, West End Bar? And the, the joke was, of course, that everybody who went to universities in the late 60s at some time or another had passed through the West End Bar. Well, if that cartoon were reconstructed today, it's very possible that the caption that would be under the cartoon would be, aren't you a friend of Peter Kaufman's? <laughs> Seriously, uh, uh, I, I'd like to begin, I'm so glad that that worked. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to begin by uh, thanking Peter for what we know will be, as always is the case, a, a banquet of ideas, and I frankly don't know anyone who could assemble the group of people that Peter has consistently assembled for, uh, for, these, uh, for these activities. And uh, uh, the uh, only thing I told him he can't do is he can't charge tuition on the way out of the conference. Okay. I'd also like to thank uh, Kathy, uh, from the Hewlett Foundation who has provided the resources to make uh, Peter's uh, work with us at Columbia possible, uh, which also includes uh, this conference itself. And lastly, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank, and I don't see where he is, uh, Maurice Matisse, my co-founder and co-director in the back next to the camera, uh, who makes almost everything we do possible, including this conference, and the entire staff of people from the Columbia Center for New Media Teaching and Learning who are too many to name, but they're around the periphery as well as in the audience, uh, who make everything work so well. That's a prediction that I'm certain will turn out to be uh, a, a correct one. Let me begin my comments, which will probably be completely orthogonal to the content of the conference, but nonetheless, these are uh, my thoughts on technology in the present moment. Um, let me remind you of a, of a poet whose name is Karl Spittler, who won the Nobel Prize in 1919. Uh, his main work, he was a Swiss, and his main work was uh, called The Olympic Spring. And in The Olympic Spring, he depicts the king of the guard, gods, Saturn at that time, because the new generation of gods had not taken over yet, walking around the heavens 
feeling really very good about himself with his arms folded and his robes and clouds behind him. And then all of a sudden, quick second, he notices something in the sky he'd never seen before. And it turned out it was, he looks over and, and it, it's a zipper. So he pulls the zipper back, he peels back the clouds, and he sees behind what he always thought were the heavens themselves, giant machinery that really was in control of everything that he thought he was in control of. Now, this was a critical moment for Saturn. He had to decide what to do. Well, like any good person in power, what he decided to do was to see whether anyone else had noticed the zipper in the clouds. And when he noticed that no one did, he zipped that right back, he smoothed it over, he folded his arms again, and he continued to walk around with the same exact look on his face, but with a completely different feeling inside. One of the responses to technology, really for 200 years, by many people, has been one of denial. But what I would like to talk about is how we have now defined two new responses that are seemingly new, not really new, that are competing and interrelated mythologies, responses that represent what I would call our dance with technology. They've become totalizing narratives. They're part of our popular media, as well as our higher expressions of thought and letters. One is related to the utopianism associated with digital media, new technologies that predicts a new age on the one hand, and another more dystopic in character that predicts in its most extravagant expressions the end of the world. The utopian, and the sentence I wrote here for myself is either a conscious or unconscious descendant of the Hegelian evolutionary enlightenment oriented past a mouthful that I'm not sure I exactly know what means at this present moment, but perhaps more concretely characterized by our wonderful colleague who was recently deceased, Jim Carrey, in his article, Technology and Ideology, The Case of the Telegraph. He calls the response to technology in that age, in the case of the telegraph, the electrical sublime, a religious-like belief in the power of technology to provide us with a kind of deliverance. Harry quotes Gardner Spring, a preacher of that era. He says, we are on the border of spiritual harvest. Thought now travels by steam and electric wire. These are familiar words. I would suggest that the temperate tone and spirit of much of the discourse surrounding Web 2.0 and digital technology in general has a very similar character. Consider what is implied in the following titles themselves. I'm going to try not to comment, but just try to take in the titles. A wealth of networks. A wisdom of networks. Infotopia. The world is flat. And a little comment here, and therefore everyone's oyster. The age of spiritual machines. The singularity is near, and the list could actually go on and on. Perhaps the operative comment is the one that C. Wright Mills provides us with in the sociological imagination when he says, 
Science, as it turns out, is not a technological second coming. That its techniques and rationality are given a central place in a society does not mean that men live reasonably and without myth, fraud, and superstition. Universal education may lead to technological idiocy and nationalist provinciality, rather than to informed and independent intelligence. The mass distribution of historic culture may not lift the level of cultural sensibility, but rather merely banalize it and compete mightily with the chance for creative innovation. Now let's turn to the other totalizing myth, the counterpart to utopia, the dystopic. It too is either a conscious or unconscious descendant of a much more pessimistic tradition in social thought from Adam Smith to contemporary social theorists such as Richard Sennett or a little further back, uh, Michel Foucault. And it finds expression also in a range of, of different uh, forms, fiction, science, mass media. Novels that I've recently read, Cormac McCarthy, The Road, the story of a father and a son trying to survive and maintain hope in a world rendered a wasteland. Jim Crace, The Pest House, the story of two young adults trying to save themselves also in a world wasted by disaster. Or Matthew Sharp's Jamestown, the novel, a book that the author himself calls a post-annihilation narrative. Vast literatures in the domain of environmental science, some very scientific, some less so, all predicting the end and perhaps most poignantly captured by a recent Times article uh, about the gnawing away of the land itself at a particular place in, in England and the effect it's having on the lives of people. An equally vast literature on the fact that the earth is not only not flat, but gradually being forced into a bimodal form of injustice, returning us to a, a 21st century form of feudalism. Think about television. I missed the end of Heroes last night. But television with Heroes in 24 as two examples, both envisioning nuclear catastrophes in American cities. And the past TV helped us to digest national disasters by trivializing them, uh, particularly after the Vietnam War. Every Every uh, uh, series had some kind of plot line that was related to Vietnam that somehow gradually, in a sense, provided us with a kind of national digestion of a series of events that were intolerable to the people who experienced them. But now what we have is TV is preparing us for the worst, so the trivialization is prospective or protreptic, as the ancients would have said. Well, these utopian and dystopic mythologies are symptomatic of our deepest-seated fears and hopes about the direction of human events, which we acknowledge is deeply dependent on the power of technology in our lives. They together are our ghost dance. As for the Hopi Indians in a threatened world, they together give expression to the fear of what might be extinction, as well as our childlike hope for a salvation. Yet neither provides effective guidance in the operational dimensions of our professional lives. We as educators and scholars and allied actors of all kinds still deal with daily choices that are burdened with histories and rooted in habitual practice. I would like to propose that the reinvention of our shelves should begin 
with an analysis of those histories and a reinvention of those practices that define our way of being in the world. Let me give a brief example, and it can only be brief. The problem of the journalist at the present time and the education of journalists in the age of new media. Quoting Bill Moyers, quoting Michael Schutzen, who is a colleague of ours at, at Columbia, quote, Michael Schutzen, one of the leading scholars of communications in America, who writes in the current Columbia Journalism Review, that while all media matter, some matter more than others. And for the sake of democracy, print still counts, especially print that devotes resources to gathering news. Network TV matters, he said. Cable TV matters, he said. But when it comes to original investigation and reporting, newspapers are for Schutzen the most important media. But newspapers are purposely dumbing down, driven down, say Schutzen, by Wall Street, whose collective devotion to an informed citizenry is nil and seems determined to eviscerate those papers. Despite the profusion of new information platforms on cable, on the internet, on radio, blogs, podcasts, YouTube, and MySpace, among others, the resources for solid original journalistic work both investigative and interpretive are contracting rather than expanding. So the question is, as Schutzen and Moyers would have it, how can we preserve the classic role of the journalist as a form of public conscience as the economies of the world, driven by new technologies, play havoc with traditional practice and create pressures to compromise standards? Is journalism reborn and democratized through the new web modalities? Or is it a dissipation of energy destructive of the public sphere? A host of specific questions. What is the nature of narrative in the age of multimedia? Can we preserve the best of what we did and still report on the web? What are the new tools that allow for new ways to discover the facts, the first task of the journalist? And what is the nature of presentation when it is possible to provide readers with the capacity to manipulate the data itself of reportage? How should we educate the journalists of the future to prepare for the changing universe? Should journalists be educated the same way as businessmen and lawyers through the use of case studies that allow for a higher level of reflectiveness that go beyond practice? What is the place of simulation? The only thing that we are absolutely certain of is that redefining the profession is also redefining preparation for it. The challenge is, how do you introduce an element of mindful practice and creation into a historical process that is reshaping itself dynamically and swiftly? And that is the general question. How do we remain masters of our fate? So what should we do, those of us who have to act each day in environments equally complex as that as journalism, those who are educators, those who are people who work in cultural institutions, the full panoply of human enterprises. Here are my simple rules. As educators and producers of culture, we should choose to be in the middle of things and derive our interventions from the problems and challenges of the actual circumstances. We call this design research at the Columbia Center for New Media, a form of research that quickly yields forms of practice to be just as quickly critiqued and changed. 
Be aware of the size of the investment needed to do anything of consequence in a sustained way, those of you who are from foundations. We consistently underestimate what it takes to reinvent education and to reshape our cultural institutions and our mediating institutions and the human professions. But rarely blink an eye, rarely blink an eye at what it takes to fund the military and its destructive mission. $2 billion were invested in producing simulations in order to be able to anticipate the events of the first Iraqi invasion. And Norman Schwarzkopf said, it was almost as if he had already done it. Well, what if we spent $2 billion building simulations of human engagement in order to support the emergence of new forms of professional practice? Neither a utopian nor a dystopic be. But if your utopian urge is too strong, use it to fuel your imagination so that you can get past the jargon that imprisons our perception and our capacity to glimpse new horizons. Lastly, for encouragement, remember what Hannah Arendt has told us in her work on revolution. It was only the rise of technology and not the rise of modern political ideas as such which refuted the old and terrible truth that only violence and rule over others could make some men free. Arendt was speaking about other technologies, and now it's our turn to make our media and our technologies further expand the domain of freedom and human well-being. I'm excited by the prospect of learning from you at this conference and Delighted to welcome you once again on behalf of Columbia and the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning. And uh, I, I look forward to many conversations, any conference that uh, Peter has put together. Much more happens in the interstices of the conference than happens from, from the podium. And I just want to also say that this podium is prejudiced from a technological perspective, since I chose not to use a computer or slides or images. I had to use the computer itself, actually the, whatever this is, the, the Tron up here, as, a, uh, as something to hold my papers up so that my glasses could get the right focal length. But uh, thank you for your attention, and uh, I guess uh, uh, next on the list is uh, Kathy Cassillay from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, a person who's been very generous in representing the foundation and supporting our conference. Uh, Kathy.